0: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
1: From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is the final take two. I'm Amy Martinez. Before we start, thank you very much for listening, and thanks for trusting us with your time for the last nine years. All right, let's jump right on in on State of Affairs. That's our weekly dive into California's politics pool. You know, when I was a kid, I used to have a Swiss Army knife. Now, I never actually used its 33 different functions because, you know, it's just more of a cool thing to hold in my hand and then show it off to my friends. Now, an AK-47 really only has one function, a deadly one, but a judge has ruled that if a Californian wants to buy one, hold it in their hands and show it off to their friends, they can now. Last week, U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez overturned California's three decades-old assault weapons ban along the way, comparing the AK with a Swiss Army knife as a way to illustrate the assault weapon's versatility. Yesterday, the state appealed. For more, let's go to uh, Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont Mechanic College. Zach, welcome.
2: I just bought the Take-Two mug.
1: Did you really? Good, good. I'll sign it for you. (laughs) How about that? It'll it'll (laughs) cheapen it, but you'll have my signature. Uh, And Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown. Marisa, welcome back to you as well.
3: Always good to be here, and I'm waiting for my mug in the mail, guys.
1: (laughs) you got to call 866-888-5722, Marisa. (laughs) I'm good, I'm good. You know that. All right, now, this, uh, (laughs) this ruling came down last Friday. Yesterday, California answered. Marisa, what happened?
3: Right. So this was, uh, I guess, if you were following the case, expected ruling, but pretty shocking to a lot of folks. And the judge did stay the ruling for 30 days to give the state this chance to appeal. Um, We are expecting the broader Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to take it up. And the state's going to be asking them to essentially, you know, allow the ban to remain in effect until the case is adjudicated. But um, it's really up in the air what could happen. I mean, this could move quickly. It could uh, get, you know, this this overturning of the ban could get struck down by the higher court. Um, but in either case, either side could appeal it to the Supreme Court. Um, and so this is a big, big deal in California. Yeah, and, and
1: Zach, let me ask you this. What evidence is there one way or another on the ban's effectiveness over the last uh, three decades?
2: Well, the, the attorney general cited a couple, of, a couple of studies that were done by uh, gun control advocates uh, in his statement about this decision. He said uh, in one study it was found that over the last 12 years that six times the number of people were shot in incidents where an assault uh, weapon was involved. And uh, there was another study that showed that, in, that California has a 30% less um, homicide rate than other states. So you know, these things tend to indicate that this is having an effect, um, that you know, this assault weapons ban, unlike what the judge has said. Has actually had a positive effect, um, even even though it hasn't, you know, stopped it all, you know, homicides altogether or these kinds of incidents. It's had a positive effect.
1: Yeah, and Marisa, he mentioned how it's uh, it's been a failure. Um, I mean, I, that just that didn't sound right. I know, I know that uh, he's maybe going for effect there, but it, it just didn't sound right that it's a failure.
3: Well, I mean, what he points out is that California leads the nation in mass shootings. What you know, he doesn't mention after that is that we have. More people than people. Else in the yeah, United States. Um, I think that there is a, a genuine question as to whether this has done the job of preventing mass shootings, and that may not be directly related to the ban itself, but to the fact that you can still go through other, you know, channels to get these weapons. Yeah. You can go to yeah. Nevada; you can get them, you know, through the black market. But it is true, a, and I think we should put this in context. And I'm not saying that people shoot themselves with AK-47, you know, with AR-15s or, you know, assault rifles, but suicides are the leading cause of gun deaths and then homicides are, you know, after that. And I think that one thing that does seem clear is that on a broad sort of scale, our very strict gun control laws in California do mean or have helped mean that you are two to three times less likely to die here of a gun death than, than you are in a state like Wyoming, Alaska, you know, Florida. So I do think that there's, um, a good argument that gun control laws work, but, you know, this judge is really basing this ruling, honestly, on two Supreme Court cases that came out in the last 15 years, came out years after the first ban was put into place. Um, and I think that, you know, that there's a lot of hope on the folks who oppose it, that, that he's making a very clear cut case that the Supreme Court really kind of laid the groundwork for this, and that the court might be pretty anxious to take this up with their new, like, pretty strong conservative majority. It's a 6-3 split.
1: Now, in a lot of ways, as California goes, so does the rest of the nation. I mean, you look at environmental policy, fuel emission standards. Zach, is there anything at stake uh, on this beyond state lines?
2: Oh, there's a lot at stake. Uh, This case was filed by three San Diego gun rights groups, and I think it's a good example of what we call a test case—that is to say, a case that's trying to get into the, the federal court system in hopes that it will get to the Supreme Court to change some kind of policy about the Constitution—and you have to—and as Marissa pointed out, you know, we have a more conservative Supreme Court, and it's really only been since 2010 that the Supreme Court has applied the Second Amendment to the states uh, in a challenge to Chicago's ban on handguns. So. If this gets to the courts, there's the potential for the Supreme Court to to enlarge the Second Amendment and restrict what states can do in regulating guns. So I think there's a lot riding on this.
1: Gun, gun ownership in the U.S. has been a, a politicized issue for a long time, but now apparently wearing masks has uh, quickly become the next uh, hot topic. Uh, may Wendy Williams please forgive me for stealing that. But, you know, A little while back, it felt as if uh, June 15th was this kind of magical day where, boom, California would snap out of its uh, pandemic haze and then be a 100% fully open paradise uh, again. But, Marisa, for workplaces, that is no longer the case, or was it ever really anyway?
3: Well, I think we may have been smoking a little something if we thought that the pandemic we would wake up one day and it would just be gone.
1: And it's legal here in <laughs> California to be smoking a little something by the way. Yes.
3: Um yeah, so this is a little confusing. I mean, here's the deal. If you're vaccinated, come next week, you can basically be mask-free in most settings. Um you can't, you know, you still have to put it on for transit and in schools and in childcare and other like Healthcare settings. But generally, you're going to be able to, you know, put that mask in your pocket and keep it there. If you're not vaccinated, that's a different story. And I think on the question of workplaces, um, it is still being worked out. It seems very likely that the statewide body that sort of sets those rules, Cal OSHA, will come back in the next few weeks and essentially kind of put us in line with the federal guidelines, which is to say that, you know, if everyone's vaccinated at a workplace, you don't have to be masked inside together. Um, But, you know, there's a lot being left up to individuals, to businesses, to organizations, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I did love that one thing the state has made very clear about is that you can't discriminate against somebody for not for wearing a mask. That's right. That's going to be me.
1: That's going to be yeah. Me. I'm going to be wearing right. It. And
3: so like it just I mean I've been doing this all this reporting with a colleague in Florida about the differences between our states, which are vast. And it's just like it's just it, two sides of the same coin, right? There they're like you can't you know take the mask off. You can't tell anyone to wear it. And here it's like no no no. If they want to wear it, they still can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, Zach, I realize that we've never gone through something like this and we're all learning as we go, trying our best. But how much of a lesson can this be for government agencies in terms of effective messaging? Because it seems like one agency says this, the other one says that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, consistency is key because you want people to understand and follow the rules. Um, You know, much of this, just like everything we've seen during the pandemic, is going to rely on voluntary compliance because you know enforcing this on a one by one basis is just really difficult, if not impossible. So setting clear, easy to follow and consistent guidelines is really vital. And I think that's why Cal OSHA is rethinking, uh, even though they're gonna be a little late to the party at the end of yeah. this month, I think you'll end up seeing that they're gonna be on the same page as the state and as the the CDC.
1: Now, Zach and Marisa, I don't know if uh, you both have heard the big news, but you know, let me let my friend uh, explain.
4: I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have a house now, by the way. It has a mahogany all <laughs> over it. Yes, I'll be working for NPR. Have you guys heard of it? Uh, and since I yeah. won't be yeah, yeah. since I won't be able to pull focus away from national politics as much anymore, I have to indulge one last time in California's recall, maybe for the last time. Caitlyn Jenner has gotten a lot of media coverage, uh, maybe more than anyone else is challenging uh, Gavin Newsom, but things haven't gone very smoothly. It started off with a weird appearance on Hannity, and then yesterday on The View, she did not answer a very simple question
5: from joy behar i want to ask you something before we go because we're out of time something that's important for me to know you say that you're a republican and i'm just wondering because a lot of republicans in this country believe that donald trump won the election and not joe biden are you one of those people one of those republicans uh, I'm not going to get into that. That election is over with. I think Donald Trump did do some good things, and what I liked about Donald Trump is he but was a he disruptor.
1: So, but Marisa, she she couldn't answer but that or was, didn't want to answer that question, and it seems it like it she hasn't gotten much traction despite all the publicity. What is will it take for Caitlyn Jenner, Marisa, you think, to get some traction here?
3: I mean, I don't want to be too flip, but I think she needs to start performing better and show a better grasp of the politics and the issues. You know, I, I think that the... The challenge is running in California as a re- Republican who supported Trump. You don't want to sound, I think, too strongly in support of him just because there's a lot of people here who don't like him. Um, but, you know, I think this is we've seen this before when celebrities decide to run for office. It, it, you really need to come in very prepared. And um, I just think generally we're not seeing a lot of attention paid, honestly, to anybody who's challenging yeah. Newsom in this recall.
1: Yeah, Zach, what, what about you? You think uh, she can get some traction on this at all?
2: Well, I mean, I would describe the campaign thus far as a failure to launch. And with this last comment and some other gaffes, I think we're, we may even see, you know, a danger of uh, blowing up on the launch pad. I mean, I don't see any positive motion here. I don't see a strategy. I see a kind of piecemeal uh, approach. I think the idea, the conceit at the beginning of this was take the star power and convert that into a quick rise in social media get in front of Californians and make a case uh, about replacing Newsom. And we're nowhere near that. And Mm -hmm. instead of that social media attention, bringing in interest to her campaign, I think it's just kind of focusing on on what a weak candidate she's been.
1: That's Zach Corser and Marisa Lago. Zach and Marisa, stay classy, California.
3: We're going to miss you.
2: Miss you, A.
1: back now with more take two on 89.3 kpcc and kpcc.org Ami martinez Among L.A.'s homeless, there's an ever-growing population that has been historically left out of the conversation. That's survivors of domestic violence. Take-Two producer Julia Paskin has been reporting on the link between these two issues, finding that almost half of unhoused women in L.A. County are there because of such abuse. It's all part of our series, Pushed Out. Julia is with us now. Now, Julia, you spent several months working on this, and I'd like to hear what your main takeaways were as you reported all this out.
6: Yeah, well, first of all, just how incredibly common domestic or intimate partner violence is, especially amongst women. Statistically, one in three women will experience this form of abuse in their lives. And a third of women coming into emergency rooms are there because of intimate partner violence. So with those numbers, it kind of begins to make sense that abuse is the biggest contributor to women's homelessness. Um, I've also been stricken with the lack of compassion that survivors can experience within the quote unquote system, the phrasing of "you know, what did you do to get here, which creates an overall sense of victim blaming and that that becomes inherent when applying for shelter and and housing services. Uh, And there are certainly more trauma-sensitive providers within domestic violence groups, but they can be hard to access and even well-intended organizations can have some harmful practices. But most of all, A, I have to express that after interviewing different survivors and hearing their stories, It's their strength and resilience that's left a a really lasting impression.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you touched on this in some of the earlier pieces, but can you elaborate on why it is so hard, so difficult for people to remove themselves from abusive situations?
6: Well, abusers can become most dangerous when their victim tries to leave. So it's the most life-threatening time for a victim. And when abusers aren't able to physically prevent a victim from leaving, there are other ways, like monitoring their bank account and their credit cards, uh, tracking their phones, or withholding access to their own children. So that means you have to make an escape plan and you have to wait for an opportunity to run to safety.
1: But why do so many women end up unhoused after leaving an abusive partner?
6: Well, abusive relationships are all about power and control. So a victim's ability to work and to manage their own finances is slowly but surely taken over by the abusers. So survivors often leave with nothing. And there's not an organized safety net for survivors facing homelessness. And in the decades of policymaking around homelessness, there's been a lack of strategy to help unhoused women in general, let alone domestic violence victims. That is beginning to change in L.A. County. But in general, survivors of abuse are not a group that's given priority for funding or support.
1: So once that leap has been made and one does wind up leaving, what are the main barriers that prevent survivors from picking up their lives and just moving on?
6: Resources are limited in shelters specifically for domestic violence victims, so beds fill up. uh, And every shelter has their own requirements, and some are pretty hard to meet. Also, to qualify for many homeless shelters, you have to already be homeless and living outside. And recovering financially also means repairing bad credit and managing debt, sometimes accrued by the abuser without the victim's knowledge. So renting and getting back on your feet has extra challenges. And it must be said that survivors are recovering from years of trauma, so it's common to need counseling and and time to process and heal after enduring long-term abuse.
1: This issue is getting more attention, and as you report, some small fixes have been made to the system, but what else needs to happen that could address some of the points you raised earlier in our conversation?
6: Well, the first step is recognizing domestic and intimate partner violence as a public health crisis— We have to talk about it more so people know that they're not alone and that they don't have to be ashamed. But advocates say we have to stop treating homelessness as a separate issue. Women and domestic violence survivors need to be made a priority within shelter and housing services. And if a survivor comes into a woman's shelter, the goal is for the staff to be able to at least connect that person with the specific services they need, like a counselor, group therapy, or transitional housing designed for survivors of domestic abuse.
1: That's Take Two producer Julia Paskin. Our series on domestic violence and homelessness is called Pushed Out. You'll be able to read and listen to the whole series later this month on com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Julia, thank you very much.
6: Thank you, A.
0: You're back with Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Megan Larson, in for A. Martinez. Who, you ask? I'm the senior producer of this operation, and the voice, for better or worse, in A. Martinez's ear for eight years. On this very last day of the show, we want to pay tribute to our quirky, comic book-loving, butterfly-fearing, supportive, loyal, warm, hardworking host, who is friendly, not social, Loves food, but doesn't eat with his hands. Adores his grandkids, in case you couldn't tell. And is probably the most beloved person to ever walk the halls of KPCC. We will miss you, but are thrilled we will continue to hear you every day on Morning Edition. Without further ado, George, this is your Public Radio Life. It's Steve Prophet. I remember you, A, and uh, when you first came on the scene, there was probably no greater skeptic than me. And... There were plenty of skeptics, plenty of skeptics, but you know what? You won us over. You won me over. You know, it wasn't just your, your tenacity, your determination, or your talent. Hey, it was your big old heart because you're just a great human being.
1: Hey, hey, Stoltz here. We talked cops, we talked crime. We talked the sheriff, we talked the chief. But let's talk about the real reason you're leaving. A few years ago, I challenged you to a race from Pasadena to KPCC's downtown bureau, my Ford Fusion against your Shelby GT500 Mustang. You quivered, you shirked, and now you're running, tail between your tailpipes. Well, the stakes are higher now with a national audience, so now it's NPR West to the Santa Monica Pier. I'm sure you're up for the challenge. Good luck, my friend. Marisa, Eric Garcetti may have 99 problems in L.A., but water ain't one. Uh, Water, though, is a problem for Gavin Newsom in Northern California. What did he have to do uh, on water this week?
3: Yeah, it's a little kind of head spinning as somebody who grew up in Southern California that we're having bigger problems in Mendocino and Sonoma County than then you know, the desert that is Southern California. But that's because of Hey, A, it's Marisa Lagos from KQED. I'm gonna miss you on Fridays, you were always the beginning of my weekend. And I just want to note that for the national audience, maybe tone down the sports metaphors just a little bit. All right. Can't wait to hear you on NPR.
7: This is Jack Pitney at Claremont McKenna College. I was trying to think of uh, great A. Martinez bloopers and I couldn't think of one. And it occurred to me why I couldn't think of any. Before the pandemic, I would drive into Pasadena to do the program in studio. So I got to spend a few minutes with A before the program started. And what I saw is something that wasn't evident on the radio his intense preparation and concentration a is a consummate professional
1: one more thing on I mean, last thing heading into this pandemic california had a, a big reserve a rainy day fund do you anticipate that being depleted as a state spends to help people recover both physically and financially from this uh, can, uh, can anything be done to preserve some of it
7: no uh, period no that won't happen i'm austin cross host of early all things considered and former take two producer One time, many moons ago, I was taping an interview with A. and Gustavo Dudamel with the L.A. film. And I realized after the interview that I didn't actually record Dudamel's voice. So I tell A. about it, and he's just as cool as a cucumber. In this interview, it was a Rembrandt, too, so he could have been mad. And that's just how A. Martinez rolls. He understood that we're all human just trying to make great radio together. I mean, mistakes happen. And to this day... He still busts my chops about it. (laughs) We'll miss you, A. And Gustavo Dudamel, if you're out there, sorry about that.
5: Hey, A. Man, what can I say? We have so many good memories in such a short amount of time. Together, we talk to teachers, high school students, nurses, doctors, actors, immigration lawyers, and so many other thoughtful, inspiring people. I learned so much from you last year, just from hearing how you pitch ideas carry yourself and treat people. You always made me feel important, like my ideas mattered just as much as anyone else's on the team.
1: But this isn't even about me or even about California because the immigrant story is the American story. How do you see the travel ban fitting into a larger immigration strategy of the Trump administration?
6: I think it fits into a larger policy that displays an anti-immigrant
5: agenda. Hey there, A. Remember me?
1: Kyle Stokes is the biggest Minnesota Twins fan
5: in Los Angeles. Go He's Twins. also I kid. will get back to that piece of tape in just a second because in my mind, the two most memorable moments we shared on the air together actually do have to do with sports. There was, of course, that Sunday afternoon that we it spent in the studio together covering the breaking news of Kobe Bryant's helicopter going down. Yeah, I had asked earlier, I put yeah. A on the spot for number eight and number 24. Why did he change the number? I couldn't remember the name of the player. So when he was a rookie... In you were so like poised And you were just like a generous on-air partner, which is completely unsurprising. That's just how you are on the radio. You're a great co-host. And that actually kind of brings me back to the first piece of tape that I shared, which comes from the driest, newsiest segment. It was like about the new education secretary back in February of 2017. She going to be on the issue of School Choice.
1: Kyle Stokes is the biggest Minnesota Twins fan in Los Angeles. He's also KPCC's education reporter. Kyle, thanks.
5: You bet. I was totally surprised when this happened, but I was genuinely touched. I mean, at the time, I had only been working at KPCC for about a year, and we didn't know that much about each other, but you did know this one thing about me, and that's that I loved the Minnesota Twins. And you brought that into the work that we do because you love imbuing the radio that you do with a sense of fun, and you're just an empathetic person. You see people. So congratulations, A, and while you're up there in the big leagues, don't forget those of us who root for the mid-market teams.
7: This is Fiona Ng, and yeah, this is Fiona Ng, come on. So I worked with A. Martinez a few times, and it was him hosting or co-hosting one of the live broadcast specials that I was producing. I squawked over to him and just basically thanked him for being always so easy to work with. And in his super nice guy way, he told me, hey, man, he never thought that you need to be a jerk in order to do your job. Something something to that effect. And as somebody who is always a little bit of a jerk, I remember that very vividly and have taken those wise words to heart.
5: A, you and I started at Take Two at literally the same time. You were literally the most low-key host I'd collaborated with, and you literally have one of the best radio voices out there. I literally loved your sense of humor, even as I cut the word literally out of all of your scripts. I'm literally so proud to have been your editor and to have worked with you. And I wish you all the best on Morning Edition.
1: And Marvel's got to Guardians of the Galaxy coming into theaters next month. You think Comic-Con fans will help uh, continue Marvel's string of box office domination?
2: Uh, I I think so. You know, it's a tough thing to say, though, because this is Marvel's most ambitious project yet. Hi, this is LAist arts and entertainment journalist Mike Rowe. I saw this desk across the office with flash action figures on it, and more and more of them kept showing up. They kept multiplying. I, I would peek over, but as a huge comic book fan myself, I wanted to go get a closer look. So I went up and I talked with a... And, you know, I was a little intimidated at first, but I discovered that he was one of the warmest, most genuine colleagues that I ever ever had. Hey,
4: Martinez, it is Leo Duran, one of your former producers. So sad to see you go, but really, you're going to be staying on the air in my ears when I listen to you and a couple of my friends on NPR. I think one of my most favorite memories is not even working on a story with you, but no offense, Megan Larson, who runs the show... We would sometimes say, oh, hey, we have a meeting outside. It starts at X time. Really? It would start an hour later. Because we'd use that time to just go get lunch together, chat, etc. <laughs> it was one of the best parts about doing field interviews with you when we're out and about. I'll go the ride. Everyone yeah. seems to want to go on the ride. Let's go on the ride. Pretty gnarly. Not going
5: to lie. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Yes! <laughs> oh my
1: god,
4: that was awful. Good luck on Morning Edition and those super, super early hours. I'm sure that the 405 will seem okay to drive on with no one else on it at that time of the night.
6: Hey, this is Megan McCarty Carino, and I wanna wish you a all the best in this very, very well deserved new adventure. Obviously, could not have happened to a nicer guy. So nice. I might never have even, like, yelled at you, which is quite an achievement.
4: Hey, hey, it's Jacob. It's too bad you're leaving because I finally got around to cutting the best interview that you have ever done. It was about marathons with uh, that marathon runner. But, you know, I I guess I'll have to put it back on the shelf uh, for another seven years or potentially send it over to NPR, maybe they could book him, you know. I don't know, we'll see, but uh, hopefully NPR doesn't make you eat as many weird things as, as I did.
1: We've got a, a, a big glass, you put some chocolate in it, and the tequila mixed yeah. in there.
4: A shot, or, a shot or two of tequila, depending on you want to double. <laughs> and uh, and then we go over to, in this case, the, the sheep and uh, get that hot milk.
1: Well, let me understand something, we're going to an actual animal. Please welcome the wickedly talented,
7: one and only Adel
0: Hey, A, it's John Frame of the Horn here. I know that happened once,
1: and then it happened again. (laughs) You couldn't make it stop. But in the world of live screw-ups, I think it was pretty minor. Isn't that right, Martinez A?
6: My name is Lori Gallaretta. I was a producer for Take Two from 2016 to 2019. A Martinez, I can't even begin to put into words... Like, what an awesome, talented, smart, down-to-earth person you are. So I'm not even going to try. But I am going to say thank you so much for being such an amazing person to work with. I will always look back on our food (laughs) adventures. All
1: right, so Jay, so what we have in front of us uh, is crispy turkey meatloaf burger. This was a surprise item. Fresh house-made meatloaf, Japanese breadcrumbs, shaved apples, red cabbage, slaw... It looks amazing. Texas toast to go on top Texas of toast. it. Texas toast. So uh, let's... A- anything let's. that's in between
7: um, Texas toast, you know it's going to be banging.
1: And I'll take what Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford had. The original fettuccine alfredo. Perfect. You're going all classic. That's right. Some of these let's of so Let's just try the taco. Mmm, man. Wow, that's really great. Wow. Fresh, too. It's not... Very heavy. It's very light and has a nice little sweet taste to it, too.
2: Hey, this is Zach Corser, director of Claremont McKenna College's Policy Lab. If I had to pick out one moment that sort of stands out for me, you know, particularly as an educator, that would be you. You reached out about the time of the deadline for California's Citizen Redistricting Commission. And we had about 10 or 15 minutes to really get into the details about what was important for the commission, why people should apply, helping people to understand the whole process. And I thought it was just really a great example of what sets public radio apart and what makes you such a great broadcaster and a journalist. So I'll miss talking to you on Fridays, but I really look forward to hearing you in NPR. Good luck.
1: We spoke with Senator Harris yesterday and began with that budget. Is there one thing within it she's determined to change?
6: Unfortunately, there's not just a number one fix in terms of the items. Um, there are many, for example, after-school funding. Uh, I want to make sure that we have sufficient after-school funding so that we can take care of California's children. This is Take-Two producer Julia Paskin. My favorite memory is recording a segment with former Take-Two producer Audrey Noe, And uh, it was a story about a crazy offer to fly New York City pizza to L.A., which somehow led us having a Martinez an extremely polite person cold call New York City pizzerias asking them to deliver to us in L.A. And, like, the first two places just, like, hung up on him. Uh, but he was such a good sport through all of it because that's just the kind of guy he is. Uh, but A is also the nicest guy, so it felt pretty bad forcing him to get cursed out by a stranger in Staten Island. Uh, but just like A, he left the swearing pizza guy on the phone laughing because he's just a sweetheart.
2: Rose Maria, pick up a delivery.
6: Delivery.
4: Okay, and what's the address?
6: It's Los
1: Angeles. Huh? Los Angeles, California.
4: Okay, so you you want us to deliver to Los Angeles?
1: Yeah, yeah, can you do that?
4: No, bro. we're in New York.
1: There's no way you could get your pizza out to LA?
4: Yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll put it in a box, I'll dry freeze it, and I'll send it right to you, right?
2: Yo, Mike, this guy wants us to deliver pizza to California,
0: and Well, that's a wrap. It's Larson again. We're gonna miss you. But to borrow a line from former contributor Andy Kamenensky, who sadly had to be cut from this tribute because of time, we know you'll knock it out of the park.